0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast. The best bits from Thursday, October the 19th. Coming up, we're here from John Lyon. John is the boss of Espas Real Estate. They've just released their latest market insight report for Q3 of this year. All sorts uh, of fascinating facts, figures and data to throw at the property Uh, scenario at the moment Um, and a few misleading headlines that he wanted to address as well with regards to the state of the market. Nikolai Soling is the Chief Technology Officer at Help AG. Nikolai is here for Jitex Global which uh, continues uh, and continues throughout the entirety of this week. In fact he spoke to us this time last year uh, down at Jitex about the need for a better understanding of cyber security and the need for better partnerships in the fight against cyber crime. Uh, our producer Mohammed Suleiman catching up with Nikolai live at Gitex Global. Jason Calacanis is in town. Jason is a renowned uh, American internet entrepreneur and angel investor. He's a teacher. He's an influencer. He's the man behind Founder University. He wears so many different caps uh, and has a massive following online. And of course, uh, on a a number of podcasts that he hosts, he was kind enough to give us a little bit of his time uh, during his latest visit to Dubai. Dubai and, of course, the UAE, a part of the world that is very much interesting him at the moment. So he popped in to the studio to tell us what he's doing in Dubai and what we can expect from Jason Calacanis moving forward. UK inflation numbers were out overnight. We asked the team from EMBD to give us their thoughts on those. And Ryan Luke, who's the CEO of Luke Stays Real Estate, also joined us live in studio to tell us uh, what's happening with the Airbnb market and how their model uh, helps landlords to uh, make money from their property, regardless of whether they uh, accept and like the Airbnb model or not. All that and more to come right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast Podcast. Uh, we've also been focusing heavily on some of the big announcements coming out of JITEC's Global over the course of the last couple of hours. Uh, in fact, we reached out to the Director of Innovation and Knowledge at ADED. Uh, that's the Abu Dhabi Department of Economic Development. And so you've got ADED, which is the Economic Development Department. You've got ADIO, which is the Investment Office. And then, of course, uh, you've got all the other entities that are signing deals left, right and centre. Uh, ADIO in the news recently because they are setting up this uh, brand. New uh, uh, cluster, if you like, it's going to be up at uh, at uh, Mazda City, and it's going to focus on smart alternatives to travel, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles. But it's not just going to look at it from uh, one element; it's going to look at it from land, sea and air. Uh, on the air front, uh, one of the headline grabbers at Gitex this year has been Archer Aviation. They want to start all electric air taxi operations in 2026. Uh, Nayef Shahin, as I mentioned from Adid, was on a little earlier on to talk up about, uh, talk about the Adio link-up with Archer and they asked whether it was going to create
1: jobs. We project that uh, Savi would contrib- contribute around 120 billion dirhams to the UAE economy while creating around 50,000 jobs. And of course, this is the year where we have the COP28 coming and as part of the plans and UAE's vision to have a sustainable and uh, green energy the the EVITOLs or the the air taxis are going to help solve the conjunction issue with zero emissions.
0: So that's also part of the UAE agenda. Uh, Those thoughts of Naya Shahin, who's the Director of Innovation and Knowledge at uh, added. We've also been in conversation with Ryan Luke. Uh, He from Luke Stays Real Estate. Date.
2: Yeah, we were interested in this one because he advertised to us. We got an email um, saying, hey, do you want to make some money through property without investing in actual, actual property? And we thought, how does that work? So we got him in. Luke's Stay's real estate um, basically allows you to, to take advantage of the short-stay real estate market without necessarily owning a flat. Lots of opinions about this. Let's listen to him explain the business model.
3: Yeah, so there's a lot of um, landlords who are not interested in the Airbnb model. But for us, we can rent those properties uh, and it's a win-win situation because the landlord gets their rent as they would a normal tenant. But a lot of them are not Too emotionally connected to the properties, so therefore they don't mind how we run the properties. And if you actually dig a bit deeper into the model, we probably take care of the properties more so than a normal tenant. You know, we're cleaning them weekly. We have to keep on top of maintenance. So again, for the landlord, their property stays in better condition over the time frame that we do have it. So we then obviously make our profit by re-renting it out on sites like Airbnb.
2: Okay, so you're subletting onto an Airbnb platform. Correct. How does that work legally?
3: So we have to get an NOC from the landlord um, to state that we can actually do it because um, obviously the DTCM who regulate the industry, we need a license. You've got to have a bit like DLD have done with the uh, advertising on portals such as property finder, et cetera. You now need a QR code. It's got to be stuck on the door. It's got to show that you are registered to actually operate as a short-term rental.
2: Right. And what about your licensing? Who are you licensed under? We're
3: the same. So our trade license is under DTCM. Um, So I have a RERA license for that side of the business and we have a a different trade license for the holiday home side, which is DTCM.
2: Okay, so you're either renting the properties directly to do this or subletting them?
3: No, so we we will rent and then sublet. Um, and then the other option that we do have is landlords that maybe want to try and improve their revenue by 20, 30 percent over an Ajari tenant. We can then just actually manage that property for a landlord. So they would just give us the property ready to go and then we just manage it for a percentage. So there's kind of two models uh, that we do depending on the appetite of the landlord, really.
2: So where does the investor come in?
3: So we, um, obviously each property that we take on has a setup cost, you know, furniture, probably some decoration. Uh, you've obviously got your, your checks, um, your deposits for your DUIs, all that sort of stuff on the rental arbitrage model. Um, so we are finding deals for potential investors who want a bit of a passive income stream, and therefore we'll put the deal together make sure that it works on our experience knowing what the data is and then put a projection forward and obviously the investor invests and then they get paid the lion's share of the money. We then obviously manage it on their behalf throughout the term. Typically we try and keep the properties for three to five years um, and sometimes longer. Uh, It depends on the landlord and it depends on obviously the success of the property as well.
2: So what kind of buy-in are we talking?
3: Uh, I would say in the UAE, uh, it's a bit more expensive than the UK. Uh, you are probably including the check system. Obviously here, it's kind of quarterly checks that we tend to, to get with the landlord. So you're probably looking at around anywhere from 40 to 60,000 dirhams for a, a studio or a one bed apartment to get fully set up and going. And then um, depending on if, if we're looking at larger properties, three, four five bedders, then obviously it, it increases.
2: Do I need to sort of take, as it were, a whole property, or can I do this fractionally?
3: Um, no, we, we we have a single investor for a single property. It uh, just makes it a lot easier on our end for the administration of payouts and things like that.
2: Okay, so you're the middleman in this. What kind of return is your investor getting, and what kind of percentage are you getting?
3: So we um, obviously we take various fees up front to acquire for the, the boots on the ground team that are out there finding the stock and finding the deals, um, and then we would take a management fee uh, of fifteen percent we charge uh, plus VAT uh, on the actual running of it month by month. Uh, the investors, it depends on the on the type of properties. You know, your larger villas, which um, will take a lot more investment uh, to get them set up, they will yield a much higher return. You know, for example. A Villa on a, a Franz Villa on the Palm will probably bring in um, 200 to 300,000 dirhams per month for about eight months of the year uh, if it's successfully set up, furnished properly, and you're attracting the right guests. But naturally, to rent a Franz Villa, you're looking at a million dirhams a year, so there's quite a high risk in that, but obviously, high reward as well should it be successful.
2: Why wouldn't a property owner just hire you to manage it as a short-term let, rather going through the rigmarole of renting and subletting?
3: Yeah, I think not all landlords uh have a huge risk appetite obviously if they want us to just manage it they are going to get fluctuating income so in the months of say july and august when it drops right off tourism disappears out of dubai everybody disappears so there's no income or very little income will come in in those months but then in months like say november december february march the income could be maybe three four times what it is in an average month because they're peak season so a lot of landlords aren't necessarily interested in that they have fixed bills and they like a fixed amount of money coming in and they like to know that they're just making that margin um, and they don't want the headache and hassle of you know the day-to-day which we do actually take away from them but there are a lot of old school landlords who are just quite happy with their margin from an ajari tenant so that's where the kind of rental arbitrage model comes in because we can be that ajari tenant and then still make it work
2: what kind of returns have you seen in your time in Dubai so far? I mean, you mo- you've got this going in the UK. Yeah. You started here um, coming out of COVID. How's it performed for you?
3: Yeah, so I think um, year one was uh, a bit of a shock when the summer came around. I probably wasn't expecting it to be as, as uh, low as it was uh, on some of the units. Uh, but overall, as a, as a destination, we get eight good months. And then if you can drag out another month, it, it, it's good. And then obviously you have sort of three down months. Whereas in the UK, for example, we have two good months, which are July and August. And then, you know, we have six very average months. And then we have three, three poor months, you know, three to four poor months. So I think here the average daily rates are higher. Um, naturally, the rents are a bit higher now, but um, the profit margins here are on the right stock, and that is the important thing. I think a lot of people are diving into it, A shiny penny sort of syndrome. And I think a lot of people are getting caught out with getting the wrong stock in the wrong locations. It really is important where you get the stock uh, to make sure that you are going to be profitable.
2: So how big is the portfolio that you're running at the moment?
3: Um, we've acquired over 400 units since I started this in 2019 um, across obviously the, t- the two locations. Uh, and we continue to just build it on a, a daily basis uh, here in Dubai and also in the UK.
2: And how many investors have you got funding this?
3: Um, We have about, I would say there's about 15 people invested so far in Dubai. So in in Dubai, we have about 75, 80 units now. Um, Obviously, we started sort of late 2020. Uh, In the UK, I run a bit of a different model. We don't really take investment for the rental arbitrage. I tend to just fund all that myself and buy property.
2: If you've got 15 investors... Um, over dozens of property, they've made quite large investments, 30 seconds left, but wouldn't it have worked out better for them just to have bought a unit and done this themselves?
3: Yeah, but I think obviously if they're buying a unit, you've got DLD fees, you've got large deposits, um, you know, you can actually make that cash flow go further through multiple units, which creates more cash flow, uh, you know, coming in. Uh, whereas buying one property might only generate you, you know, for example, two hundred thousand dirhams a year, whereas you could actually rent four or five with that same sort of money and generate more cash flow.
2: We're out of time, but thank you very much for joining us this morning. Ryan Luke, the CEO of Luke Stays Real Estate, uh, offering people the chance to buy in uh, to the Airbnb market without actually buying an apartment.
0: Thank you for your time. Thank you. Uh, UK inflation numbers overnight.
2: Yeah. John Walters, economist
4: from Emirates MBD, has been putting them in context for us. UK headline CPI came in slightly higher than had been expected in September, remaining unchanged from the rates seen in August at 6.7% year-on-year, with higher oil prices offsetting slower food price inflation. Core inflation, which strips out the more volatile food and fuel components, also fell by less than had been expected to 6.1% year-on-year from 6.2% in August. An area of concern for the Bank of England would be the surprise rise in services inflation from 6.8% to 6.9% in September. Services inflation is closely watched by central banks because of its close link to domestic economic conditions. Despite the slightly worse than expected September figure, headline inflation is widely expected to fall into. October. This is because of the reduction in the energy price cap from the first of the month. The September outturn is unlikely to change the Bank of England's decision on interest rates given the sizeable drop in inflation expected in the October CPI print. Our central view is that the Bank of England rate has peaked for now.
2: Why do we care here in the UAE, apart from the fact that Jeanne used to work in with the Treasury team at the Bank of England, therefore knows it? We care because there's an awful lot of UK property that is owned by people here in the UAE and not just Brits. So what does it mean for them, we ask Jeanne?
4: While it looks unlikely that individuals with variable rate mortgages on UK properties will have to face a further rise in rates in the near term, they will arguably have to endure rates being at these higher levels for some time to come. We expect the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee to start its rate-cutting cycle in the third quarter of 2024. This is Sian Walters from Emirates MBD.
0: This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on Dubaii1038.com.
2: And yesterday, at around this time, we were... Talking to Phil Bahoshi. Uh, about the Magnet report that showed lower VC funding into this region, about 40 50% down year on year when it came to the amount of deals and the amount of money that was being raised here. Coincidentally, we have a Silicon Valley angel investor who is in the UAE at the moment in the studio. Jason Calacanis is known for early investments in companies like Uber and Robinhood. He's got more than 100 million listeners to his podcasts, which include the All In podcast and This Week in Start startups and the heir of founders such as one little known Elon Musk. And he's with us this morning. Jason, it's nice to see you. Thanks for having me, Brandy. What are you doing in the UAE at the moment?
5: Yeah, thanks uh, again for having me. And uh, I I made my first trip here uh, in the spring, got to visit uh, and do some podcasts here, um, and was really impressed by the entrepreneurial activity. And I run uh, a number of early stage investment programs. One of them is called Founder University, and uh, I have the podcast, as you mentioned, All In, and This Week in Startups. And so I'm looking. I believe that this region is going to play a major role, as you mentioned. Uh, a lot of the uh, money in the region is looking at venture capital as a, a potential new discipline to have here, and so uh, I'm looking to bring those programs to the region uh, and help company formation here and uh, in the United States. And then on the margins, uh, I am raising a fourth fund, as you have uh, heard from previous guests. Many people in the United States who are fund managers believe that this region is going to play a major role in the next two decades in funding uh, the technology companies of the future. So on the margins, uh, you know, I might have a couple of LPs here. Um, I don't have any currently. Um, I'm doing about seven or eight meetings per day while I'm here. It's quite a pace.
2: Okay, let's dig into that. So when we are looking to to raise that money, as you say, to, to, yeah. to get those partnerships going, who are you meeting with?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm meeting with everybody. Uh, Mubadala and uh, Hub 71 have been pretty impressive here, uh, as well as uh, the Dubai Economic uh, Development Corporation. Uh, and then I'm meeting a lot of founders. Had dinner with four founders last night uh, at this amazing Michelin-starred uh, restaurant that you just mentioned, the brothers, well, oh, Folly Brothers. brothers. Yeah, oh yeah. my lord! This <laughs> restaurant is extraordinary. Uh, putting that aside, I'm a foodie. <laughs> uh, the entrepreneurial activity here is fantastic, um, and you know, I'm, I'm a. I try to study people, and watching um, the capital allocators here, uh, when I look in their eyes, I realize that they're not the dumb money. Uh, they're not looking to just put money into venture or fund of funds. Uh, they're they're looking to build the discipline of venture capital. I don't think that they're gonna be passive investors. I think they're gonna be quite active and they're studying what we've done in Silicon Valley in the United States in terms of venture capital as a discipline. And I think they'll be the number two player in the next 10 years in venture capital.
2: What's gonna push us up there?
5: Well, um, I think understanding um, which companies to bet on and then which companies to follow up on. If you you think about venture capital as a discipline, there are two or three important steps. The first is you have to have deal flow. So you have to have companies to pick between. We're very blessed because I have these podcasts that 20,000 people apply for funding from my firm, which is called Launch. We have 19 full-time people. And we meet with uh, 15% of those applicants, 3,000 meetings per year. The more deal flow you have, the more discerning you can be. When you start out as an angel investor or a venture capitalist, you have to fight to get deal flow, right? And then people have to, uh, you, you then have to make a decision. So deal flow, then decision making. How do you assess if this founder has what it takes to go all the way, to build a legendary company that's sustainable? Um, and then finally, you know, after you've got the deal flow and, and you've made your great decisions, you have to support those companies and know which ones to follow on. The the money that's made in venture capital is not just when you make that first primary investment. It's knowing which company is going to break out, whether it's Uber or Robinhood, some of the great companies I've been uh, able to invest in. But then can you double down and triple down on those bets? Those second and third bets on the companies in your portfolio are the ones that actually drive returns in venture capital.
2: Okay, which is what I wanted to ask you. When you're meet, when you meeting founders mm. here, what is that, as Richard Dean would say, secret sauce? You were an early investor through Sequoia into Uber, yep. like you say. There's a number of others um, that you're well known for. What makes that pick? What are you looking for? Yeah.
5: Uh, so I have about a dozen reasons uh, to invest at the earliest stage. When you're investing in a company like Netflix that's public, you can look every quarter you know how the how the subscriptions have churned and how much they make per person. In the early stages, you have very little to go on. So we're looking at the track record of the founder. Uh, We're looking at if they're actually builders. When we see two or three founders who are builders, they're developers, designers, uh, growth hackers, if they have the skills to build the product themselves, they go a lot further. And if you want to go far in uh, venture capital in the startup land, um, you want to go together. If you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. So two or three founders is great. And if they're builder founders and there's two or three of them, they have what we call product velocity. What does product velocity mean? It means every time you open up the app, something gets a little bit better. They're testing some new feature. Products that have low velocity and companies that have low velocity don't go as far. If you look at a great company, you mentioned Elon Musk and Tesla, anybody who has a Tesla has this delightful moment every couple of weeks when their software is updated. And it's like getting a new car. They add some new feature to the software. And, and if you have the iPhone, you get your new iOS, iOS update, uh, and, and you see that product velocity from companies consistently. That's a good sign that we should invest and make a bet. Then we want to help the founder, spend time with them, and see if we should give them more money. Our first bets might be $25,000, $100,000, $250,000. We secure a low single-digit percentage ownership in the company. Then we work with the founder to grow it. And then we'll put another two hundred fifty thousand dollars or million dollars in the next two rounds and try to get to a ten to fifteen percent ownership position.
2: Okay. I've only got one minute left with you. So what are you looking to do here, particularly, for example, with your Founders University?
5: Yeah. So we are going to have a partner. We don't understand the local ecosystem as well as the angel investors and the VCs here. Uh, So like we did in uh, Australia, we're going to look for a local host for This Week in Startups to work with me on a podcast here uh, from the region to feature the investors, to feature um, the um, uh, startups, as you know, media plays an important role and showing those examples of people who've really done a great job building a company or investing in them is critically important. And then with the founder university, we wanna to try to get 1,000 people to apply, maybe 200 people to come to the program in the region uh, for this 12-week course on building a company and then hopefully we can invest in the top 100 and give them their first 25,000 to $100,000 and convince them to quit their job. And most of those companies are not even incorporated yet. And so that's really the goal, is to get people to quit their job at Google or Microsoft, their dead end job, uh, and then start a company. Maybe you and Tom have an idea, and uh, I can bring you a bag and give you $100,000 to start a company. That's really how it happens. Tom, what do you think?
2: I'm in.
5: OK, great. Tom's in.
2: How much money could we see you putting into this region then? Um, I
5: think we'll probably try to do a dozen investments a year for a couple of years, um, in very small checks. And then it's really up to the ecosystem here to take it from there. We want to inspire people to create companies, but you need to have many uh, investors in those seed rounds to help support the company. So we hope that the ecosystem here here is strong enough to, when we inspire people to start companies and quit their jobs and and, and you know take the plunge, we hope that the 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 uh, affluent people here who have wealth will put in that next hundred k, two hundred fifty k, and and really pass the hat. That syndication of deals is what's made Silicon Valley so special. If you have a great idea in Silicon Valley, and you're at a dinner party, and you present it to 10 people at a dinner party, you might have three or four people say, I'll put 25k in, and all of a sudden, you have $100,000, you can quit your job and start working on it. That type of risk-taking is what makes great markets. We see that in Australia now. We see it in the Scandinavian countries that have produced Spotify, Klarna, and other companies, and we're starting to see it here.
2: Jason Kalakanis, the angel investor, speaking to us this morning. He's in town at the moment. He's normally based in Silicon Valley, talking to us about his plans for this region when it comes to investing. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jitex Global,
0: the biggest tech event in 2023. Thanks very much indeed for your text messages. Do keep them coming in. A lot of people talk about their time at Jitex Global this year. Uh, Well, Dubai, I want a 3.8 very much at Jitex Global this year. Uh, in fact, let us head there now because the rapid rise of AI or artificial intelligence has made businesses in the UAE a lot more vulnerable to online attacks. That's according to cybersecurity experts across the region who've been showcasing the latest trends in the industry at Jitex this year. Our producer, Mohammed Suleiman was down there uh, physically at the show. He caught up with Nikolai Soling, who is the chief technology officer, the CTO at Help AG, which is the cybersecurity arm of e and enterprise formerly known as we all know as atisalat so mohammed began by asking Nikolai back with for all the latest when it came to what's going on in the fight against cyber criminals
6: we spoke to you on the business breakfast i think a couple of years ago during peak pandemic and you told us that because everyone is working from home the cybersecurity landscape has completely changed looking back at those couple of years ago um, what lessons have we learned when it comes to cybersecurity from the pandemic uh, absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you for having
7: me. I think it's super relevant to still talk about cybersecurity even post pandemic because what we saw was that people didn't get back to the offices in the same way and we have now gotten used to being able to work from home and and be able to work in a much more flexible way. and that has created a whole new paradigm shift for cybersecurity. and cybersecurity today is very, very different than a couple of years ago. A good example is everything that you see here today and you'll see here at Jitex, it's all about digital innovation and utilizing modern technology. If cybersecurity security is not a part of that, it's potentially a big disruption to your business. So uh, if your dependency starts to increase on technology solutions and security was not thought into it, you can really create a bad scenario for your organization.
6: What are the biggest sort of challenges facing businesses? Anyone listening to Business Breakfast right now, driving into work, what are the sort of the biggest uh, challenges that they're facing when it comes to protecting yourself from cyber criminals?
7: There's a number of them. I think when we're looking at the consumer side, it's very much down to lost credentials, that you lose a password or lose your account details, and then someone logs into your iCloud, Facebook, or social media accounts, and then you kind of, 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 of lose out on that. And that can be a very, very big problem. If you're an influencer, can be a very big problem if you lose access to your social media for organizations it's a little bit similar uh, identity is also something that we talk around a lot and then there's ransomware and then specifically here in the uae in the last six months we've seen a dramatic increase in something called ddos attacks ddos attacks is really this where attackers they try to uh, take systems out of operation by hammering them with uh, traffic and trying to uh, find those vulnerable spots in an application then potentially taking a system out of production. And of course if you're dependent on those systems running if you're an online retailer or if you're a financial institution who moves your e banking uh, sorry your banking onto e-banking applications, well a DDoS attack on your infrastructure can be a very, very big problem.
6: What about mistakes? What are the sort of the one or two big mistakes that you see very commonly that either small businesses or even big businesses make when it comes to when it comes to cybersecurity?
7: I think first of all, uh, the
6: biggest mistake is not taking
7: it serious enough. Cybersecurity is a must for everyone today. It's a day zero job. Uh, So that's one element. I would also say another issue is not listening to what's happening. Um, I know it can be hard, but when we see a dramatic increase in DDoS attacks, you don't need, and if you're dependent on your IT systems, you don't need to wait for a DDoS attack to happen to you. You can just look at the statistics, and we're very, very honest in our statistics, and we want to make sure that we really showcase a real picture of what's happening right now.
6: Finally, let's talk about AI, Um, one of the buzzwords that's happening right now. It's a big theme of JITEX as well. Um, What does AI mean for cyber criminals and cybersecurity? Do we have to be more on edge because of what's happening when it comes to ChatGPT and the uh, development of AI? Absolutely. So first of
7: all, AI had a, and actually we saw that in our statistics as well. So the minute that ChatGPT was released for like open preview and these kind of things, we saw a dramatic increase in the quality of what we call phishing emails. So phishing content being someone trying to phish information out of you. And we used to say that you could use language and you could identify if there were spelling mistakes and these kind of things in the the content that you received. The minute ChatGPT came out, that completely changed. So we saw better content we saw better content in different languages happening which meant that people were more prone to clicking of course we're now a cybersecurity industry we're also utilizing ai to detect better so it's kind of like it's always a chicken and egg uh, yeah. situation where we utilize the technology to be better at cybersecurity, but attackers they definitely also got a very very interesting tool set in their hands and and right now, maybe the benefit is a little bit to the cyber security, the cyber attack uh, uh, side, and and we'll catch up, of course, in cybersecurity. And that's why we talk so much about AI here, and that's what we do as well in our services.
6: Fantastic, Nikolai! Thank you so much for it. time. Nikolai Soling is the Chief Technology Officer at Help AG. Back over to you guys in the studio.
0: Very kind of you, Mohammed. Thank you very much indeed, Mohammed. Uh, Suliman, our producer, live down at uh, Jitex throughout the course of this week, uh, bringing us all the latest uh, from the floor. Just the highlights. This is the Bite sized Business Breakfast.
2: Spast Real Estate has just released its Q3 real estate earning report. I have a copy right here. Going through the numbers with the managing director, John Lyons. John, good morning. Thanks for joining us.
1: Good morning, Brandy. How are you?
2: I'm good. And I want to start with the rentals rather than the sales, because i I'm having a look at this page, and it is full of red arrows. I feel like we don't really do red arrows here at the moment. What is going on?
1: Yeah, so you're right. The the Q3 report for the Dubai real estate market is out by a real estate. It does show a significant reduction in transaction volume, the number of tenancy contracts being signed in many of the communities tracked by this report. But on the next page, you'll notice that the the price, the rental price is up significantly. So what we're seeing is we're seeing rental prices continue to move higher, and we're seeing that encourage some tenants to move further afield to more affordable areas, and also that ongoing trend that we've seen throughout this cycle, where many tenants are now opting to become buyers, given the prices that they're expected to pay if they choose to remain as tenants.
2: Right. Let's break that down. So the red arrows is in transaction volumes for rents. Less people signing.
1: Less people signing. So in the report, you will see that it is broken down to total transactions. And then there's renewals and new contracts. Both renewals and new contracts are down. And that works in quite well with some of the other data that we're seeing which is that there is still a transaction volume increase in the sales market for secondary market as a whole for Dubai. So we still see strong activity for people wanting to buy properties, but we see lower numbers of people transacting on the tenancy contract side of things in some of these prime communities where prices have become quite a lot more expensive in the last 12 months.
2: And given the fact that where we have seen the uptick in signing prices, as you say, it is a a page of green arrows, um, the majority of them are over 20%. Does that suggest people moving out of that rarer price cap protection and into... New properties, renting new flats and villas.
1: Exactly. You just you can see that when you see somewhere like the Meadows, for example, they're at 20% increase in the average rental price, or Jumeirah Golf Estate's 24%, the Springs 20%. It's natural to then see people decide to move further afield to get what they would perceive to be better value for money, and they're willing to sacrifice on location in order to find that better value tenancy contract. Those who can afford to buy are also opting to do so because interest rates, although they have gone up, um, the the interest rate that people are paying for their mortgage is still very affordable. Um, and it allows people to effectively buy properties and have a cost of living that is lower than if they chose to rent those same properties.
2: Is any of that rental transaction slowdown because Q3 is effectively summer?
1: I don't think so because it's a it's it's a quarter it's a year-on-year comparison. So obviously that would have been the same variable factor in play last year. I do think it's more to do with the trend of as prices have gone up dramatically, people have decided to go elsewhere, and also that that tr- that trend that we've seen where people are opting to buy if they can afford to do so. So people who have been tenants in the city for the last ten years during this cycle they have been choosing to convert themselves into buyers.
2: Okay, and we do see indeed those transaction volumes rising for the ready property, that that's already been built at Q3, busier this year than last year. Tell me what that tells us about the market.
1: Yeah, so Q3 this year has been busy as a whole. Transaction volume, if we look at the residential market, and our our report focuses on the residential market specifically, we don't look at the entire Dubai real estate market, so we strip it down to apartments, villas and townhouses. We can see that transaction volume is up about 20%, just over 20%, and the total value of transactions up close to 50%, which means that the unit selling price is up around about 15 to 18%. In the report, we do break down the residential market townhouse, villa, apartment, between off-plan and secondary market. And there's two different stories at play there.
2: Yeah, there is indeed. Let's quickly start with the secondary, though. As you say, um, we have more owner-occupiers than ever before, but we've got quite a a difference between apartments and villas, don't we?
1: There is a difference. And in the majority of villa communities that we track, which is 13 communities, the most prime communities that we operate in, we've actually seen that more communities have seen a transaction volume decrease in the in this quarter compared to last year, whereas the majority of apartment communities that we track have seen most of those communities have seen a transaction volume increase. And what I think we see there is the valuation gap that has been created between the villa market and the apartment market is attracting buyers. They're gravitating towards what they consider to be the more affordable, more tangibly priced market, which is the apartment market at the moment, relatively speaking, compared to the villa market. So we're seeing an increase in activity in the apartment market as more affordability is seen in that market.
2: Or it's just what people can actually buy into.
1: That's true. People can obviously, you know, affordability comes into it. So if you're opting now to choose between buying a three bedroom property, the Springs is more expensive than what you can get in Dubai Marina. And there's no surprise that we see a big increase in activity in Dubai Marina.
2: Well, maybe is a surprise here, off-plan coming in softer?
1: Off-plan coming in slightly softer. There was a headline last week which uh, caught everyone's eye, which talked about the Dubai real estate slowdown. But really, it was, in my mind, slightly misleading because it very much focused on the off-plan market. And it focused on the off-plan market for just one month, the month of September. And it's true that the month of September was over 40% down on September last year. But when we look at the quarter as a whole for the off-plan market, it was actually up 24% on a year-on-year basis. And from Q2 this year to Q3 this year, marginally down less than 1%. So really, from elevated levels in Q2, we've still seen very strong activity in the off-plan market. But not the continued huge gains that we've been seeing so that rate of growth is, is 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 it's not accelerating it's the same way as it has done in the past.
2: Yeah, I've read your comments around that too and you suggest that it might not be a bad thing.
1: I think it's a good thing ultimately if the off-plan market does slow down a little bit. It less speculative demand in the market will help to prevent a situation in years to come where we've got an oversaturated market. So I think it's natural that Markets will go through cycles of being incredibly active and then they will slow down and moderate them, moderate themselves. And that's what I think we will probably see in the off-plan market going forward.
2: I've got one minute left with you before I have to hand you over to Tom. What are you actually seeing in a space yourself in terms of the change in the number of buyers or would-be buyers and the change of those selling?
1: OK, so we're still seeing very active. We do spend a lot of our time focused on the secondary market. We've got an off-plan team as well, so we're busy in that space. We see both markets continuing to be active. If you look on the back page of of the report, um, you will see that we've seen a 20% increase in mortgage leads. That's a good leading indicator. That's the that's for the Q3 compared to last year. We've seen a 64% increase in buyer registrations, a 9% increase in listings. The one area that we've seen a decrease is price reductions so normally sellers go on a price dis- a journey of price discovery people are still very ambitious with their price and they're very reluctant to reduce that price
2: or well, they don't need to
1: they a combination of the two they they have they, they have a reluctance to drop it and if it sells they don't need to so that that's probably part of the story as well so the back page of our report shows what espas is experiencing we had a 14% increase in the average unit selling price this year compared to last year. So everything feels very strong in the Dubai real estate market from what we can see.
0: A couple of questions that have come through, one from Salah out there, more on observation. So maybe looking for a bit of advice uh, from uh, our agony uncle, uh, John Lyons, this uh, morning. Uh, Salah saying, look, I find it hard to believe anyone living here for the past five years can now afford to buy now, but not earlier when today's property is more expensive and interest rates are higher. Is that fair? I suppose
1: that's getting the old foot on the ladder of the property market. It's definitely a natural conclusion to come to, and I think it's a fair comment, but the data doesn't support the point. Because like I said, there's 29% more transactions happened in the secondary market year on year, and 9% more in Q3 this year compared to Q2 this year. So the trend of growth in activity continues and although prices, unit prices in the secondary market are up about fifteen percent on a year-on-year basis, people are still finding a way to buy those properties because there's a genuine need and a genuine desire to own properties. I so that that's what the data tells us. Anecdotally, I, I see lots of people that I know within my social group that are buying properties, that are deciding to, you know, live here long term admittedly, they're buying properties that are smaller than they would have been buying if they had been buying three, four years ago. So mm. they're having to downsize their expectation of where they can live and what they can buy. But they're still buying. But isn't that just because properties in general are a bit smaller these days? Certainly
0: new ones coming to market smaller than they were back in the day.
1: Yes, true. And also people are, you know, they're, they're going towards a different location if they can't afford the location that maybe was their dream location. And at some point in the future, they might move to that location. So they'll work hard towards that goal. But certainly I see that anecdotally. I see that in the conversations that we're having where people are buying properties, but it's not quite the property that they thought they might have been able to buy if it was three years ago we were having this conversation. And that's anecdotally. But the data says it's very, very active. Believe the data.
0: Don't believe the headlines. Read the data. The data don't lie. Uh, Nor does uh, the Espas Real Estate Market Insights' latest report, which is available at all good booksellers now. Is that right or not? We can make that
1: happen. I'm sure we can, yes.
0: Sounds good. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to
1: DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.